And then like Bunny was like, and Shitab were like, oh, oh. And I was like, ah. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. Today I have Joel Law with me, a man with multiple roles as the president of the DA, as a coach, and as a competitive debater. We talk about fairly sensitive subjects in this episode, so viewer discretion is kind of advised, although I do think that we do our best to keep it as PG as possible. So, yeah, enjoy! I think the biggest thing that separates the two of us is the, the time that we started debating, right? So I've, I've started debating from a very, 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 very long time ago. Whereas your career is a bit more recent in that, in that aspect. You dinosaur, bro. <laughs> what were you... Thank you. Thank you, Joel. What were you doing in secondary school? Uh, and why did you suddenly decide to transition into doing debating in, in poly? In sec 1 and sec 2, I was in Chinese dance. And then in sec 3 and sec 4, I was in ELDDS drama. I, I do I love arts. I love like performing and stuff in general. Um I still do it now sometimes. And for me, in sec three and sec four, I, I did want to be involved in the debate part of ELDDS as well. Um but quite interestingly, my teachers never wanted me to represent the school for a competition. So they basically would pull 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 a few kids from drama over to be punching bags for the for the SSSDC team. And then like we are we we are used to basically like kind of like prepare them and like I guess like make them feel more prepared uh, and more confident. At least there's one school that or one team that we can beat. <laughs> I know right. And, and, and I think it's a I, I think it's a good it's 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 good and bad. But at the same time I think I felt very uh I felt I felt like oh I, I mean I, I guess I suck at debating. Yeah. I think it's mostly bad. Like, you make the drama kids feel bad. Yes. And then the debate kids have no idea what, what, what they're going to be up against in SSSDC. Yeah. Literally, there's no value to it whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> the, as in, well, I mean, the, the, the thing about it was that I felt very sad because it, I, I felt like it meant that I was bad at debating. So when I first joined Polytechnic, my first decision was not to join. I didn't join debating first. You know, I joined volleyball, you know. Like, I, I, I was having a lot of fun. And the way I got into debating was basically I got a very bad ankle injury in volleyball. And then um, one of the NP seniors was the coach at my school, in my secondary school, right? And he wanted me to speak for the SSS, SSSDC team, but for some reason, the teachers didn't want, want that to be the case. Um, so what happened was that he tried to pull me back into debate. And at that point, in a moment of vulnerability after the ankle injury, I was like, okay, I'll try this debating thing again, even though like, I might not be very good at it. With Kevin, he, he he tells a story of how he kind of left after a while. Was that the case with you as well? Oh, like, did you no. Feel after the first few <laughs> no, sessions? No, bro. That... I, I got sucked into it. Like, <laughs> and I have been here ever since. Like, <laughs> I did not leave. <laughs> not, a, not even a bit. If you didn't have that volleyball injury, do you think you would have still joined debates? Uh, probably not. Lah. I would have probably just focused on that and also on school. Um, I will say that poly debating takes up a lot of your school time. Kevin is absolutely right. I went home at like, like 12, 11, 12 a.m. because poly training just extended from like 7 to whenever the coach wanted to like stop. And for us, like after Ruben left, who was, Ruben was, our, was, our, was my coach for two months. After that, I had no coach for the rest of my career, which is quite sad. Um, but like Ruben uh, was very mindful, obviously. He, he ended it 
on time at 10 p.m. And then, but the problem is that we will do things like have supper afterwards, and then we end up like dragging things, which is a very uni debate club thing, right? If you think about it, but like, yeah, right, right. It was it was the biggest kind of cultural shock when I when I was asked or invited for a couple of weeks to to help with uh the Masik Poly back in like 2016. Right. Uh, like the idea that trainings drag until this late at that level was like, mm, okay. I mean, I I thought it was just a a a raffles thing, right? Because sometimes it will end at like ten o'clock and there's a competition. I feel like, wow. what the what the hell are we doing in school at ten o'clock? Turns out, um, it's literally it's every other poly club as well. So I have very little reason to complain. Uh, what do you think were were the was the primary difference between like poly debating and then going back to the schooly circuit? Um, and doing MIDCs in terms of like the culture but also in terms of the, the way the debate is treated or viewed by, by these two separate circuits I think for me it's uh, the way I see it is uh, style is something that's very consciously focused on in the school circuit so um, when I was well, you know, in poly debating, what happens is that you go in as long as you can speak, no matter how you speak, as long as you are able to, you sound clear and you are, you know, and you are, you meet certain basic criteria for what it means to be a public speaker, then you, you more or less will be on the team. Um, but I think in, in MIDC or in the most school circuit, right, what happens is that, um, it isn't just about being able to go up there and say a few words, you know, it's about being able to say things very, very, um, in a very polished or in a very stylistic way, uh, I guess, and, my first interaction with this was at uh, a DA tournament uh, that they organized. It was this DA, I, this ITE, ITE DA. Oh, Validite, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I remember this. Um, and and my first, my opponent was uh, Danman Hai, and Yu Hui was on that team specifically. Uh, and she was so good. She's so persuasive. Like, her, her rhetoric, damn strong, you know. So I was like, wow, I need to break that rhetoric first. Uh. I cannot... I, I, it's a bit hard, uh. And then I tried, I, I, I realized I couldn't do anything about the rhetoric thing. So I, I just kind of went up and just angrily, I, I did my usual angry, shouty speech. But so what happened was, we lost the round, but I, I was best speaker of the round. Uh, and it was quite interesting because Yuhui was like, hmm, like she, she kind of narrowed her eyes at, at <laughs> she kind of narrowed her eyes at Thurston who was judging. I, I didn't know that person was Thurston. I later found out, um, that that was Thurston because I recognized his face like two years later. I was like, hey, you're the one that judged me. <laughs> I finally died. Uh, I've only taken part at two World School tournaments. One is Validite and one is, uh, MIDC. So, yeah, it's, it's quite, both times, right? I remember, Judges being all like, um, you know, you should stop shouting, you should stop being so angry, and you should, you know, speak in a calm, in a very polished way. Uh, and I remember, I remember thinking to myself that, wow, that's quite hard. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. And, and, and here's the thing. I think personal voice is something that shines through in poly debating. You'll see like all these poly debaters like Zeke, Zeke and like Kaven and like everyone, Tarini, like they'll make jokes that are very, very funny. Um, because it, it, the personal voice shines through naturally with when, when style is unabated by the kind of stringent requirements or the very stringent view of what style should be like in the school circuit. So right. I think um, when we discuss the differences between poly and, and you know, school schools debating, I think the, the emphasis is clearly uh, on... There's some emphasis on style that is not present in, in poly debating at all. Um, and I would, I would suggest that that's because, obviously, of the, the whole need to score style separately from the rest of the other components. I'm not in favour or in favour of any of these things. I think these are just observations I've made over, like, the past few years. Yeah. Would you say that the emphasis on style 
disadvantages some people in in the WSEC circuit. Yeah, I actually actually I do think so. Um, I actually think style style is often a product of your background. So if you come from a more privileged background, um, then your style is going to be significantly better when you first start off debating. Uh, it isn't to say that. Why is that? Yeah, it's just a couple of things. Like whether or not you come from an English educated family, for example, whether or not you use English as your native tongue. I grew up as a, uh, as you know, uh, in a Chinese speaking family with like my grandparents raising me, and and you know, I'm they they speak in Hokkien and Chinese, and I, uh, I go to church, and my church is in Chinese. I studied the Bible in Chinese, um, you know. So a lot of of this meant that when I first started debating, and even now. When I still debate, um, I I feel I I feel like I I still think of certain things in Chinese first in prep, and after I I will like it's like free figure figures of speech because Chinese is a lot more concise as a right. language. So my spoken Chinese is not not um as good as my spoken English now, and I I don't I don't know I think that's just how the Singapore education kind of closed the gap for me. You know what I mean? But I think for a lot of right. uh other kids, right, this isn't the case because a they may not necessarily be very be very language oriented people. For me. The privilege I have is that um, I'm a, a lot more uh, oriented or I'm more inclined with the languages and arts. So to right. me, so I was a, a a bit. It was a bit easier for me to close that particular style gap. But for a lot of other kids, I don't think um the style gap, especially when I've coached like div three uh div three school, um I tell and I've coached like div three, div two, and div one schools. I think that the style disparity mm-hmm. is very clear on socioeconomic boundaries especially. So like, whether or not they've had access to certain enrichment programs that enhance their confidence, what kind of things they've been told in school about who they are as people. I came from a school that was from an, was, was, it was a Div 3 school, obviously. Um, I didn't debate in secondary school, but like, teachers used to tell us things like, you know, like, you all are here because you didn't do well for PSLE. And it, it conti- continued with me into MI. Like, MI was like, oh, you know, you, you are here because like, you didn't do well for O levels, you know. You guys failed basically, and this is something that is a trope. I think that rings quite clearly um, within schools that are not already academically like performing very well. And I think a lot of times this kind of rhetoric then affects and impacts the confidence of the speakers coming from those schools, especially. Can I also posit that it's at least partly to do with the fact that if you go in an environment that's primarily Chinese speaking or where the English vernacular comes out as Singlish, right? Like, it doesn't matter how much, like, the teacher in school teaches you about, like, present past yeah. participle this <laughs> that shit, right because the way that you internalize these rules are based on your own vernacular that you are using at home and that you're using in the communities that you surround yourself with so that makes it very hard to code switch later on when you're trying to move into like queen's english debating and yeah. and that's again why privilege then becomes a part of the debate lah. Like I I mean um the reason why my family is like this also is partially because like my my mom especially she grew up like quite poor. Like she uh right. she grew up very very poor. So what happened was that uh the only thing she was good at was with languages. So she ended up just like right. doing well for languages and then because of that it became a huge socioeconomic leveler for her. Because anyone from her background, right, right and she came from she really came from a family where whereby all of them ended up in drugs or like in crime or like in prostitution or like that kind of thi- of that kind of work and um and obviously we're not saying that those things are, we're not going to pass a value judgment on those things but it's just it's just that um she ended up becoming a uni graduate uh she ended up becoming a teacher at some point with her PGDE 
um, and then she ended up being an engineer and she's currently an engineer. engineer. So, like, I think um, the ability, right, to access certain kinds of enrichment at a younger age and what kind of rhetoric that's being thrown at you, I think is, is, is very, very formative of your confidence and obviously subsequently your style, stylistic ticks and all those things. There are two ways in which uh, our our current debate activities are very similar. The first is that we're both part of the DA, and you are currently the president. You were elected in 2019. You know, one of the unique things about being president is that you get to set um, a direction for the debate association moving forward. And the debate association has evolved tremendously since the time of, you know, Gaurav leading the DA or Emmanuel leading the DA. Where do you envision the DA being in five to ten years' time? What What is the direction that you're plotting for the DA to execute past your, your own tenure? I think DA as a whole, um, and what the circuit thinks of the DA right now, are important factors to consider when answering this question. So I think people generally want DA to perform a tournament organizing and camp organizing or workshop organizing role. And I think this is still this is still the case, even though there might be criticism against certain tournaments or like certain uh, ways that we've handled the logistics perhaps or like feedback process. I think those things probably are criticisms that don't necessarily preclude us from doing those events in the future. The, the role is largely going to be unchanged. Where I think the role might change specifically is in the case of training specifically. So in the past, we had DDI. Um, and obviously, we shut down DDI because of quite a number of reasons. But like, given that we've kind of transitioned to online debating, and given that we've had like, you know, DA May Masterclass Series, and we have had, um, we've, had, we've hosted an online tournament before, like, I guess... Um, one thing that we could potentially be looking towards is how can we firstly better engage the primary school circuit using those same tools, but secondly also how can we maybe close some of the training gaps that um, students are inevitably experiencing because of the pandemic, but also like for the next few years, like again, if you come from a Div 3 school or a Div 2 school that has no coach, someone like me, for example, where, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't in Div 2 or Div 3 when I was in, when I first started debating because I was in poly, but like, you know, having no coach, I think was, was really, really tough. Like, and I remember looking at the DDI kids and feeling very, very envious. It's not just about the teaching, you know, it's about the whole fact that you have a network of friends that you can be teammates with. And that was something I never had for, for a long time. And so it, that was a very personal part of my experience in debating. So I, I, what I'm hoping to do is that I'm hoping to use uh, whatever DA currently has, perhaps to reach out, um, maybe not on a regular basis, you know, maybe maybe that that's a commitment level that that we aren't able to put out right now because the exco is firstly quite young and secondly quite occupied with school. So given that we have certain limitations, um, obviously we're probably looking at some form of ad hoc training or some sort of resource distribution amongst like schools or Div 2 and Div 3 schools. I also noticed that, you know, one thing that you've always emphasized um, in this exco is this emphasis on diversity. Yes, um, it's deliberate. And I think the DA is, is more diverse today um, than it was uh, in the past. Mm. But some criticism that perhaps can be levied upon it is that we are losing touch with the so-called elite of the circuit. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> so, for instance, this particular exco that we have, have has absolutely no WSDC connections. Do you see this as an issue? And, you know, uh, perhaps you want to talk a little bit about diversity okay. as a whole as well. So, when I was director, for, when I first started, and then I, I looked at the exco and I felt that there was not enough representation from the poly circuit. 
And it's very, very unclear why. Because, like, some of these poly debaters have been debating since secondary school. And then, like, once they graduate and chose to go to poly, the, the like, I guess, like, why 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 would the DA decide that those people aren't, aren't important or those people have no meaningful experience that, meaningful abilities that could contribute to the DA? So I think um, one of the things that I made sure of was making sure that there are more poly, um, poly debaters coming in. The second thing is I looked at the gender balance as well. And I, I remember talking to more women and, and asking them to, to run for a specific position for the exco this year specifically. Because I wanted to rebalance the gender balance because we, in the past excos, we've only had like one or two women in the exco. And so I think it's very important to put out there that gender balance is very important because I think having women on the exco makes it such that female debaters are also likely to be able to conceive of, them, of themselves playing those important leadership roles in the future, maybe as part of DA. Right. The thing about, I want, I want to also like tie this back to is also this whole like need for WSDC representation. And here's the thing, I actually have consciously very, really, really tried to reach out to the WSDC part of the circuit. And look, I, I, I really don't, like the idea that people think of them as elites. I really don't think that um, just because you're in world schools, you are an elite debater that's like 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 right. set set apart from the rest. I, I hate that idea. I think that's... It's weird that debaters talk about elitism and inequalities in debates like and they are able to articulate it so well, right? But still buy into this whole narrative and rhetoric around like the elite, these are elites. It's absolutely nonsense. Right. Um, I think what I want to point out here is that I have reached out to people from world schools and I've tried to include them in things like the camps and everything. So I would love to have people coming in from all schools and sharing their unique, valuable experiences. You know, if you're part of world schools or if you're part of the world schoolie circuit that, that, and you are a huge figure in the world schoolie circuit, please come and help. Please come and volunteer with us. We'll try our best to like, like remunerate you or try to give you a, a appropriate a, a tokens of appreciation. And the thing is that a lot of times, some, some of them don't feel that, that pressing need to, to reach out. And so, so that's a, a problem that in and of itself. The second problem is that how am I supposed to recruit them into, uh, into running into, for a position? How am I supposed to, to tell them, please run for this position if they are going to fly overseas? Like, <laughs> like if they're going overseas <laughs> for university, right? Then it's impossible for me, right? To, to be like, Hey, can you perform this particular function in the, D- in DA for me? It's, it's very difficult. And the reality is that a lot of them go to like Oxford, Cambridge, you know, and, and that's great, good for them, you know, excellent. It's really excellent for them. Um, and I'm happy that they, that they get that opportunity. But it's, it's very hard for me to like ensure the representation from world, from the world school side of the circuit when these are the persistent trends that are, are out there. The other commonality we, ha- we share is uh, our coaching experiences. I want to pick your brains a little bit because you are an extremely successful coach by any metric. Your primary school kids have won words and words. Uh, which is something that very few coaches have managed to do since Rosetai started monopolizing the market. Your Victoria school kids made top four of SSDC. Uh, both Victoria and Crescent Girls ended up in the finals of Hawaii Invite, setting up an all-Joel Law finals. In, in, in many ways, uh, in your relatively short coaching career, um, it suffice to say, achievements-wise, you've made an impact on the circuit. But I don't think that achievements are the, are the biggest thing. So what I want to actually understand is, what lessons have you learned given that you're now about to, you know, move past coaching, move into the next part of your life? I feel like I've taken away a lot of patience and compassion, I think, when it comes to handling people. Um, I had a student in one of my schools that was so concerned about the fact that he came from normal academic and he thought that that was something that was a problem. 
you know, it, it meant that he couldn't go far. And eventually, at a tournament, uh, he was he did so well that the other coach from the other school texted me and told me, "Hey, you know, this guy from your school, you know, wow, he's you know he's single handedly winning the debate, you know." And and I and at a point like this particular individual had blossomed. Uh, I was very happy because he started out as a very very meek person. Like he was, he couldn't like his style was very very you know quiet. He was, and he couldn't really form a full sentence. He would trail off. He would be very like afraid of sp- speaking up. And in, in those people that that uh, have this quote unquote weak style that I think some coaches would dismiss, um, I I find usually very thoughtful kinds of personalities. And I think that thoughtful personality shone through because. I was patient enough with this particular person. And I feel like that means, as in that, that's a very important lesson for me. And then things like, for example, the whole attendance issue, for example, for this specific club was ameliorated when this was something that was observed by the teachers as well. Um, and I think it's very important because like debating then becomes something that isn't just about doing well in debate. It's about doing things like restoring a confidence, building up a sense of self that is confident, that is empowered because they know that they are that they are not stupid. Um, and I, I know, I've grappled with that, with that whole I am stupid thing. And I still do sometimes. And I think that debating has helped me and also a lot of my students to restore a, a very broken part of their self-esteem. And I think that's something that that I take away, but also like I think my students take away from from debating. I think the second thing then is also that they become a lot more committed to learning. Um, that's it's not just the attendance thing, right? But it's also the fact that they are more curious. I've I've become a lot more curious too. Um, and I think it's something that uh enables them to do much better in the classroom. And the fact that they turn up for school also is is, is just a bonus, right? Like they liking school and coming to school because you like it is. It's an enjoyable experience compared to like dragging yourself to school. I think that's very important. Those those are the lessons I take away. Like not just patience and compassion, but just like things like right. being able to motivate. How do I motivate uh, people to to do what's right for themselves? You know? Yeah. Right. I've always been surprised by the f- idea that a coach can shape uh, a school's so much power your experience man. in school. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, I mean, I never, I never believed that when I first started coaching secondary school. Right, you see them for like at that point it was like three hours a week but you know as Hawaii has expanded and grown you know um, I'm starting to see that impact a lot more and it's quite powerful that people are com- coming to school because they enjoy debates you know and they enjoy going to CCA and that's part of the, their motivation for waking up in the morning and dragging their their sorry ass to right. <laughs> you know to, to Jurong West right so um, like I don't know it, it, it's been very impactful as an experience on my life yeah yeah it's it really is yeah we're gonna talk a little bit about um lgbtq issues and in particular i think some misconceptions or some uh, knowledge gaps yeah um that people have about these issues uh what we will try and do is talk about less commonly talked about issues to fill out more knowledge gaps rather than anything else mm. so that if you find yourself in a university debate where these issues are being discussed or where this can be a good extension in closing for instance then you have something to work to work off yeah so perhaps Joe, you can you can start us off yeah so i think the first thing i want to discuss is this idea of like by erasure so like the a lot of times people don't 
think that uh they, they 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 still think of sexuality in very binary terms. So like you must like only one and the other. You need to make a choice, and that's a problem that I think afflicts bisexuals quite a fair bit. So like why why bi erasure occurs is because like we have a very like binary conception of attraction, and um what happens is that in in debate land a lot of people. Um, forget that this is a community that that's facing this sort of microaggression. Um, a lot of people are unable to tell me what are the needs of the LGBTQ movement, and like they only reduce it to basically marriage equality, which is quite funny because I'm just like it's not just about. And marriage. in Singapore, at three seven seven A lah, that's basically it, right? Yeah, which is quite like lame because like yes, those things are true, but the gay people or the gay men and the lesbian women wanting marriage isn't just, they are not the only ones in the movement, yeah? There are a whole bunch of other people in the movement. Um, And so in this case, it's right. bisexuals. Bisexuals or even pansexuals, right, experience a range of attraction to a range of people. For bisexuals, right, what happens is that people take issue with this kind of, of of identity. They say, oh, look, like you have to make a choice. Why are you so greedy, for example? This, sort, this is one of those microaggressions. Or like they are immediately assumed to be polyamorous, for example. You know, they are assumed to be like right. the, the in an open relationship. And so people make unwanted sexual right. advances. And I think on top of all this, right, parents especially, uh, like being able to characterize the dynamic of how their parents, in, uh, you know, challenge them, you know. Because like with gay people or gay men or lesbian women, you know, it's like always the whole abomination, you know, it's the whole sin, this is sinful. And then for bisexuals, right, right, right you get you know, a very different get, kind Get out of my house kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a very um typical, uh, the stereotypical thing that you would hear from from people right. on gay, gay men and lesbian women. But like for bi people, right, a lot of times, right, their parents be like, oh, you bi, is it? Hmm. It's okay lah, as long as you're not gay. As long as you 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 are doing this, it's a phase of exploration. So they don't view bisexuality as a legitimate identity. They're basically telling you, you know, choose wisely. Yeah, right? <laughs> and be like, yeah, you know, you're, you're, doing, you're doing your exploration thing. And it's quite scary because I think that is a very... Like, I think coming to terms with your sexuality is already a very confusing experience. And like, for someone, right, to have... Been like to be a on the receiving end of saying you know yeah this is a phase lol like 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 for people to do this right it, it's it's very undermining of the person's very subjective inward experiences about attraction, so that's the first thing on bi erasure. The second thing that I want to point out is this idea of gender being uh this misconception this second misconception misconception on gender being like a binary thing and like you know it's like male or female. So I want to first point out that biological sex is separate from gender. That means to say that um, whatever biological sex is assigned at birth is something that is determined by what genitals you have at birth, at the time of birth. And whatever genders I, and gender identities we have, right, all those things, right, are separate from, from the biological sex. And, like, this is just true. Like, pe- humans have a conception of gender that, that's very different. In the, in the West and in, I guess, like, for some parts of Asia, for the longest time, we've had a binary system of gender. But for a lot of Pacific Islanders and for a lot of Oceanic, um, indigenous people, right? And also, like, in, within, like, for example, like, the Bugis people of Indonesia, like, they have, like, more than, uh, they have more than two genders. They have like whole bi- a whole range of genders. And for like the Buddhist people, right. they have like five different gender identities. And I think so what this is important in pointing out here is that they, the idea and the concept of gender is something that's entirely socially constructed. The roles that we attach to gender are subsequently also human, like socially engineered and, and put in place. You see? And why would you say were they socially engineered in the past? Really, like, the idea of gender, right, um, started out as a very, 
a very simplistic way of trying to fixate a specific division of labor in society. So this division of labor would yield economically productive results, but also like on a social level, like it would have, it would yield better child raising. And a lot of primitive societies first started out uh, using gender as a way to distribute labor in the family unit. Um, child raising with moms and like obviously dads going out to hunt and to, you know, do work and stuff like that. And it's something that has evolved over time, but has largely been constrained by what we call the patriarchy. And the patriarchy is basically this um, power, this power structure that basically advantages men, that privileges men with the ability to set up the tone and the, the direction and the, right. of that particular division of labor of that particular family unit. I think that actually, right, people don't really understand that gender is constructed on, on the weird human premise of being productive, being economically productive. It's about ensuring that the family unit is, is functional. So it's a form of functionalism, actually. Right. To allow for economic productivity. Yes, correct. Like to allow for, for basic economic processes to work. And so the point I want to make here is that, uh, the, and the second misconception I want to debunk is this whole idea of binary genders and that the idea that there's only two genders because this is something that affects non-binary people quite a fair bit um, and genderqueer people as well as gender non-conforming individuals and just maybe even, even gender fluid people. And so I think what what's very important to point out here is that the binary system of gender acts as a very oppressive force because it prevents people from being able to access or to move in and out of certain roles that they think is suitable for them or that they resonate or identify with. And it is because of that of that prohibition that the gender binary system imposes on these people that it becomes a form of oppression for those individuals. And for people to say that this is a form of political correctness, right? They'll say things like, oh, you're being politically correct. Why must I ask for your gender pronoun, your preferred gender pronoun? Why should I ask for your... Why should I treat you with a gender-neutral pronoun even... Um, and a lot of times, these are the microaggressions they face because of an unchanging and unyielding belief in the gender binary system. Do you think that this sort of erasure of gender nonconformity um, is a problem within the LGBT movement itself? Yes. So, like, I think that, that nicely pushes us to the third third thing about the about trans people. So, I think that uh, there are quite a number of issues that face trans people specifically, um, and. I think what people don't realize is that gender dysphoria is no longer a mental illness. So gender dysphoria is this basically inward experience, right, that, that trans people have, that they don't feel like this is their body, um, and it causes them a lot of distress. In the past, like, APA used to put it, uh, mark it out in the DSM as a, as an actual disorder, and you must be diagnosed, diagnosed with this mental illness in order to go on hormonal therapy and gender reassignment surgery in some jurisdictions. But now, it's been taken out entirely. Because we recognize that, um, we are, we want to destigmatize, uh, this particular identity, especially. Um, and the thing about trans erasure, right, is that, um, a lot of people don't actually realize that women, trans women specifically, are an important part of discussing intersectional feminism. So, a lot of times, people are like, yeah, you know, black women often are oppressed by white feminism. But have they thought about the dynamics of trans women, for example, and what are the needs of trans women? You know, the fact that cis straight women are sexually harassed and sexually assaulted is true, but trans women are twice more likely than a, than a cis straight woman to encounter this kind of sexual, sexual harassment and assault and are also twice as unlikely to report this particular incident. And it often it boils down to the fact that a lot of societies have you know, sexualized them and have fetishized them in the same way that like the Thai sex tourism industry basically kind of makes lady boys such a huge part of the show. You know, they are f- fundamentally, right, trans women, right, 
are often viewed as sexual objects in a way that's very different from um your your other cis straight women. You know, it's a, it's a form of sexism that is about how the male gaze really just oppresses you and the male gaze just objectifies right. you. And this leads me very nicely to answering your question as well because um when people ask questions about like for example Caitlyn Jenner whether or not she's like she deserves to be even considered a real woman, a lot of times um people forget mm-hmm. that her experiences right of being a trans woman um of having been gender policed of having been having a lot of the kind of internal dysphoria a lot of the internal distress a lot of the in- internalized sexism and misogyny a lot of those inward experiences like as in over the course of her lifetime Caitlyn Jenner has has been a recipient of this kind of abuse a, a lot of this is linked right quite nicely into s- toxic masculinity and and the whole like sexism that people are uh, that people generally face and the gender policing that they face for being non-gender conforming these are very common experiences with trans women and a lot of times they don't right. uh, in debates right we don't consider how trans women matter to the feminist movement at all one thing that I've never understood right about like when some some kids make arguments about these topics is when they say stuff like if you do not focus on the majority of the movement and you only focus on a small minority in the movement so like oh feminism if you don't focus on you know the majority uh suburban white woman and you focus only on the trans woman that makes up one percent of the movement then like you're not gonna have enough political capital hello you are the minority the whole point of having the Correct. movement is that you already do have more political capital than the majority already but you need to protect particular yes. individuals right and the people who deserve protection the most otherwise they need to be protected by your movement first yeah i'm sure that there's obviously a reason like or like debates kind of force you into this position but i think there are far better ways to, to phrase it than than to say that a movement that is meant to protect minorities should not cater to the minority within the minority. Like, oh my god, people. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> so disappointing. It think about the argument. Yeah, first, whenever I hear know, this like... argument, I, I kind of cringe a little and I'm, I'm like, so you're saying that I should just like throw away a bunch of people's rights and their freedoms because like you care more about gay men's rights because gay men's rights matter more. I don't think they realise... The disjoin, right? Yeah, I, don't, I really think they don't realise <laughs> yeah. that they place an insane high burden of proof on themselves to then later later justify this principally. <laughs> this, that's why it's a bad, bad <laughs> argument because it, it relies on a premise that takes right. a, a very that's very difficult to prove. Right? You need to be able to prove that right. these rights matter less and it's usually very difficult to do so. Wait, so like just to recap the whole like trans thing, so it's um you should take away the fact that these people are often objectified, sexualized and subsequently are very vulnerable to the worst exploitation and being able to outline what those that exploitation does look like is important. So so actually what well, one thing I'm quite interested in is, you know, when you talk about how um trans women are left out of the feminist movement, um does that apply to like lesbian women as well? Well, I I think for lesbian women, uh, they don't get that get this br- get the brunt of this as much. But with regard to like lesbian like lesbianism and how like um lesbians are uh you know, viewed as sexual objects. That's definitely true. Like, so, the fact that lesbian women, right, are often told by men, like, like men on the street, right, will, will feel like it's a, like, they are them woke, right, when they go up to a lesbian couple and be like, yeah, you know, this is cool. This is cool, man. I, I approve. You know, like, like, for some weird reason, cis straight men have, have this impression that lesbian couples require their, their <laughs> approval, require their validation. Like, and, and the best part about it is that that validation right. comes from a very sexual place. 
right? Right, right. It comes from a it comes from a place of like two women going at it is is hot in their heads. So therefore, it can be approved. And and there's also this um dynamic where whereby um it's not it's not just that cis straight males actually harass these people and and obviously I might I right. do this kind of microaggression, but it's also that on an additional layer, right? What happens is that a lot of time there's things like conversion rate. Like, this idea that, you know, if I, like, you are like this because you've never had a good man. You know, you've never had, right. had a good dick, you know? Like, like to them, right, right, they genuinely view their lesbianism as a symptom of having, of not having had a good male experience. You know, like, and, and it's very scary, like, because they, they feel entitled to correcting that. You, you see what I mean? Oh. And that's oh. toxic. Oh, yeah. That's terrible. That's super toxic. Okay, so we've talked about the L, the B, and the T. Uh, there's also the G that's a bit less left in the LGBT movement. Okay, for gay men, right, I think uh, there are really, really um, a lot of things like happening right now. So the first thing is that, uh, like, intersectionally, I think there's a lot of racism that's happening within the movement. So, like, um, like white gay men, for example, in, in you know, like, your, West, your Western countries, right? So, like, they've already achieved things like marriage equality and stuff like that. How do you explain what the next challenge is? It's that these movements are often very fragmented on the over lines of racism, for example, or over lines of toxic masculinity. So, let's first discuss the first thing on racism. Racism happens, right, um, when, for example, these men, right, set out boundaries for what is considered attractive on the basis of your race. So, they legitimize racial preferences on things like dating apps, for example. Um, and they do things like, for example... Um, sexualize certain kinds of identities like um african-american or people of african-american descent right there's this whole like trope about you know um that they are very well and very well and oh my that's that's a very that's a very articulate eloquent way of of articulating it um yeah um yes if you know you know if you don't uh don't ask me until you're above 18 yes and the thing is that um for like asian men right in the same way that Asian women are often put in very compromising and very um, submissive positions, a lot of that... Very petite. Yes. Kind of, a lot of right. that submissiveness, right, right. is... Ref- like, a lot of times, right, Asian men are also portrayed in very submissive ways as well. And a lot of the times, right, these create a kind of fetish around this particular race. Right. So on the first level, I think the racism is quite disgusting. And, and it's also like why you don't really see like an Asian male lead in a in a predominantly white show. Yes. Right? I can't think of any example. Or at least it's very, very rare. I can think of one example, but it's, it's a very, very rare thing. And that, that show was a very groundbreaking show. I actually want to ask you something. Um, You know, a lot of people would counter your, your point about racial preferences by saying... What's wrong with having preferences in terms of attractiveness? Like, you're naturally attracted to some people and not naturally attracted to other people, right? Why then is having racial preferences wrong? It's just disgusting. So, like, um, I, I wanted to, like, refer to, like, the Singaporean context to answer this question. So, like, a lot sure, of, like, sure. the Malay and Indian gay men, right? Um, they face a lot of, uh, and it's just been recorded actually by this Instagram activist that, um, they documented this whole, like, all the different kinds of responses that came up from Indian and gay, uh, Indian gay and Malay gay guys, right? And they say that a lot of times, right, the Chinese people, right, are able to use this as a way to reinforce the, the attractiveness of their group. And it creates a, a culture of sim, that's similar to white worshipping, right? It's about power dynamics here. The moment, you right. legitimize racial preferences. You legitimize a power asymmetry and a power dynamic that will inevitably disadvantage and lower the self-esteems of 
a very vulnerable group of people within your own community. So like the reason why it is illegitimate as a preference is on two levels. The first is just, it is just outright racist for you to say that someone the color of the skin, that's because of the color of their skin, they cannot possibly be attractive. Because clearly, like you can be attracted to quite a few people, right? They, they, like some people will be like, you know, I, I, I don't usually like Malay women or Malay guys. But you're quite pretty, leh. Right. You know, like you, you, it's it happens all the time, right? And right, and because right. and it's offensive, obviously. But it also tells us that you cannot essentialize an entire group's potential attractiveness to nothing. And like, if you if you are someone that can, is not able, right, to see past racial your racial prejudices, because and I've talked to people about this before. Right. I think that um the reason why racial preferences happen is because um sex and relationships are very intimate, and so like the human mm. need. And there's an evolutionary pressure in general that has resulted in us cognitively seeking out people that are like us, that are similar to us. And we often otherize other groups and we see them as foreign threats um, because of those evolutionary pressures that came from, you know, the village and everything right. and the, the tribalism that happened in like pre-modern societies. Those kinds of pre- evolutionary pressures, I think, then shape the way we we choose our partners. But in an increasingly globalized right. world where immigration is very, very very, very nicely facilitated. A lot of times, um, civil society is made up of more than one kind of ethnicity. Our ability, right, right now to intellectualize all these things, right, means that there's a positive responsibility on our end, a positive moral responsibility on our end to introspect and to obviously, like, correct for these biases as far as we can and not default to just being like, no Asians, no this, no that. Um, so the other thing that we, we talked about or we want to talk about is about toxic masculinity. Mm. Right. So I think perhaps a, a brief introduction to that and Toxic then mask. how it affects. Right. Oh, He's... the sense, the sense, oh. the sense from my old school still permeates to this day. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> dude, I know what you're talking about, dude. Like when, <laughs> when you're coaching a boy's school, right? When you walk into a school already, right? Like it's a really a metaphorical sense. Like you, you can, you can feel it in the yeah, air. Yeah, you can feel it in the air, you know, it just like weighs down on you and you're like, oh shucks, I have to like conform to all the gender, all the gender norms and roles of being, being a guy. Um, so, okay. Let's first talk about toxic masculinity as a as a sure. offshoot of like this patriarchy thing because, um, toxic masculinity sure. at its core, right, is about keeping people in their lanes in the same way that patriarchy and all its elements really wants to just oppress people into staying in their own lanes because those social the social right. coercive forces here are meant to obviously put out right. a specific form of division of labor. So toxic masculinity really is about is is made up of a couple of things like it's made up of things like gender policing. Um, it's a lot of things like confirmation bias. Um, and a lot of times, right, what happens in toxic masculinity specifically as a, as a construct is that the way it interacts with, with men specifically is what makes the whole thing very difficult for, for gay men. Because for gay men, right, a lot of times they are non-gender conforming. They don't, I, they don't, they don't fully like the, the construct of being male, for example. Um, and for gay right. men, for example, um, toxic masculinity means that uh, they get a lot of gender policing because uh, if you are someone that is a submissive person, if you are a submissive partner in a relationship, sure. you are feminine. You know, like there's, there's a lot of these sure. things and therefore they say that it's a... But, but I think there's kind of... Yeah? There's kind of two things that I think are quite important to point out at this stage, right? Yeah. The first is that a lot, a lot of this toxic masculinity is born out of the fragileness of masculinity as a concept itself. That it constantly needs reinforcement that you are some kind of superior being who doesn't who doesn't show emotion, for instance, in order to even work as a concept. And that's why this policing is so necessary to begin with. Uh, will you agree with that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, definitely. Oh. Um, that that's the that's the part of the explanation. I think that, that that's also very important. That the fragile masculine ego is what 
uh, is being preserved through toxic masculinity. When, so uh, toxic masculinity is an, an institution and a structure of the patriarchy. What it does is that it, it tries to protect and preserve that particular fragile masculine ego because this fragile masculine ego right. is premised on the insecurity of their own masculinity. They, are, they, they don't know what it is like to be men unless you are a man in this particular fashion. And so any other conception of the male identity that falls out of what the fragile male identity or the fragile male ego knows, then that particular male identity becomes a threat to the fragile male ego. So this is why, right, for example, right, masculinity, right, is something that is heavily and policed, for example, by some guys. Some guys will do things like, say, things like, oh, no femme queens, this kind of thing, because they, they, they don't, oh, they say things like no sissies, for example. And it's all because there's this right. desire of, of that fragile male right. ego to protect itself further from the from the fact that I'm already gay, for example. And But the second thing I want to point out, I think this, this is really, really important, right, is that we shouldn't be bogged down with the misconception that if you do not demonstrate a level of masculinity or the, the conception of masculinity, that you are therefore gay or that you are therefore somebody who is uh, uh, automatically put in with that same label. Because that's what happens in school, right? Like, if you're somebody who cries or if you're somebody who is emotional or you're... Which is, by the way, a bloody healthy thing to do, mm. right? Because... Like, that's how you, like, ensure that you're not bottling up and creating more mental problems for yourself. Like, but the, the problem here is that if you do this, then you are automatically labelled a particular way because that's, that's associated with femininity, which is then associated with being gay, right? That's something that has to be broken. Yes. So the idea that you, you have to suppress your, emotional, uh, your emotionality as a human being because you're male uh, is part of the fragile masculine ego's way of preserving its male identity. Because, again, remember, it's about its insecurity on its own identity. It, it doesn't know anything else but to be male in a specific way, in this particular way. And it only feels secure in being in being male and being comfortable in being male in this very, very, very specific configuration right. of being male. And so emotionality is a form of attack to the fragile male ego because it tells you that you know, it's this is possible. You can be male and be emotional. You can be male, for example, and also perhaps be um a submissive partner in a relationship. These are these right. are things that the toxic male ego cannot accept. And the reason why is because it constitutes a threat. I mean, if you think about it, correct. The the, the definition of being emotional is just the ability to feel a range of emotions, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's the, the, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. In fact, it's the most healthy way to live because that's how you experience life in general, but also that's how you ensure that you are, you know, open with other people about yeah. your problems and then you can work together to solve those problems to begin with. Right. And that's something that I try to emphasize a lot wherever I go to. Correct. And and that's why, right, uh, toxic masculinity is so damaging to gay men though. Because for gay men, right, it, coming to, to terms with their sexuality often requires them to challenge this toxic masculinity. And so what happens is that a lot of times, right, people will have preferences like things like, or saying things like, oh, you are only date discreet men or straight acting men right because what they're really saying when they are looking for these qualities of straight acting men or like discreet people right is what they're really looking for is this sense of masculinity that is rooted in the fragile male ego Alright, so now we'll be moving on to debate Mount Rushmore. So today, Joel will be telling us about four people that he selected for his Mount Rushmore. So, Joel, go ahead. 
Alright, so the first person that has influenced me a lot is Viha. So Viha, right, is a poly debater, right? She started out as a poly debater. Uh, she started out in secondary school, but she, she, she went to poly debating and she's like this huge name in poly debating because she's the, a legend that ended up winning UADC. Uh, when I first came into the circuit, she had finished winning UADC, basically. And she had basically right. done ABP twice, you know that? And she, sorry, she had been finalist of ABP twice. And so when I came in, she was truly like a legend, you know? And everyone would tell me, you know, she's the best whip speaker uh, in Asia. And and when I watched her speak for the first time, I was so enthralled. And I, I, I was like, goodness, like I've never seen someone yell with so much finesse <laughs> and with so much um, right. intelligence, you know, and it, is, it was good for me because I, I'm a shouty debater too. So it kind of helped me go, oh, this is, it is possible to be shouty and persuasive. Yay, you know, that kind of thing. I have a future. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, maybe I can do it too. Yay. And then I think the other thing, the, the second reason why she's on the, or the one of the biggest face, she's, she's the biggest face on the Rushmore for me, lah, basically. Um, and the reason is really just because, it, like, if you have, if you have no coach, you have no ecosystem, nothing going on for you, right? Um, you really rely on the goodwill of people in the circuit to give you opportunities so like opportunities like for example going to judge at APUBP Novice which was the edge core of um, in 2016 I think that was very helpful in terms of jump starting my judging career in, in the uni circuit and right. I, I, I mean I, I eventually was able to judge the out rounds as well which was a, really an honour for me at that point I was like oh wow I, I managed to and it was a BP format debate so at that point I was still quite new to the BP format as well so I was quite glad that I was able to have this opportunity because in later in that year I ended up judging the grand finals of the Malaysian National Intervarsities. And and really that was that was um and it was a really incredible debate. We were like Jaina, Mivzal, Amrit, you know, like these big names all clashing right. all in the same debate. And so I couldn't have done it. I really couldn't have learned how to judge properly. And I would never have had that opportunity if not for Viha giving me that first opportunity. And and the third and the third reason is just because um she took me to a to UT Mara Open. And honestly, it was quite a tough like tournament. It was really a tough tournament. You had people like Shomi, like Mifzal, Amira, Adil, all being there. We we faced them in the semi-finals and in the finals. Oh my goodness, like it was a bloodbath. And like throughout the entire thing, I was just like I was like, you could see I was semi-panicking. Semi and like, Viha was, uh, was like, in the semi-finals, uh, you know, I'm supposed to do member for her. And in the semi-finals, I kind of lost my shit. And like, I told her, I, 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 I don't think I can do member. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just do up with. Is that okay? And then she was like, oh, it's okay, don't worry. And then she did it, you know? And I was like, wow, she, she, she really did a good job, you know? And I was like, wow, okay, 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 it makes my life so much easier. And... I learned so much from her as well, and I feel like she listens to me during prep. Like she allowed me to right. say whatever, the f or like what truly whatever the f I said, right? She will she listen, and then she just played the the role of like being like this stupid, this good, this this not so good, you know? Like like it was good at calibrating right, my right. intuitions as a debater. So I think, in the All absence right. of a coach, she has truly been been a mentor figure to me. All right, how are the others? Hui Yi uh, is also like a really huge figure, in, in the sense that like she really is so good with words. Like, she truly, like, has excellent diction as a, as a debater. I mean, it comes from the fact that she's... Also, she, she's amazing. Like, she's an overall human human being. She's just amazing. Like, she's a good teacher. You know, I, I asked her for help for literature. Right. I, like, isn't that... That's kind of why as well. Like, she's... she's in, like, she's amazing with, like, lit. And she's so... She's a writer. And, like, her diction, right, when she, when she gives speeches, especially her reply speeches, right, are so cool like uh, it's it's so good and i think it's interesting because for me diction right is uh is something that very little people seem to want to pay attention to 
Um, but for some reason, she's able to craft very what do you vivid mean narratives. Diction? diction means like word choice. Being able to frame things very well and craft narratives that are so cogent, that are so vivid, that are so persuasive. Wow, I tell Hui is like up there, man. And and it's no re- it's no wonder why obviously like she and and Aditya and um and Viha ended up winning UADCs all together. That that is a it's a lethal combination, seriously. And like I think um the second reason why she's on my rush on my rush mouse also because she took me to SDO in 2018. And it was a very different prep dynamic, you know. She she and I had, you know, like for Viha and I, you know, I, I say a whole bunch of, of random things. But for for me and her, right, it was more of like a she would be telling me her ideas and I'll be trying to absorb them because they're so good. And like and then I'm like, oh god, I can't right. do these ideas justice. I I I I'm not able to frame things as, as nicely as I, I need I need it to be. So at some point it was it was a lot of like trying to rediscover myself as a a speaker too. Like I, I had to think of how to support her, I had to think of being of being that support role, you know? And also it was right. a fun experience. That's the best part about it. The best part about it was we screwed up reading the info slide about info about samurai bonds and then we absolutely killed ourselves in OG. We like shot ourselves in the foot. Right. And then Ruben in LO came up. Uh, Ruben, Ruben was making fun of me and, and rightfully so. I was I gave a PM speech on samurai bonds that that was in direct conflict with what the info slide meant. And then um it was truly a very confusing experience. And then, you know, like while he was making fun of me, like he was like there, like, wow, this one are very uncharitable, you know. Must she, she, she was like, oh. and then she went up and then calmly but aggressively defended <laughs> defended us. And then after when we sat down, we were like, wait, oh, wait, what's happening? Can I ask you? I mean, you were you came from Nian Poly. How how then was this interaction possible where you were able to get opportunities with with the two of them when you weren't even from the same club. Oh, um, so with Hui, um, I kind of just turned up for SP trainings quite a fair bit because um, NP and SP had a generally close relationship firstly with like trainings. We've had trainings. I remember my first, one of my first joint trainings, I had Oze uh, being there and JT, who's their coach. And I, I mean, I turned up for it because like I had friends there too so like my friend Phyllis used to be like oh yeah just come and it was very nice because like I had no literally no other like training opportunity after SMU open trainings closed so for me it was uh, it was through that interaction oh, also it, there's just like this poly rivalry going on with TP la. like the NT and SP block are like galvanized against right. the, the TP giant you know <laughs> like it's 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 a tale as old as time yeah <laughs> and yeah so I think for Viha I remember it was honestly the getting opportunity to go to tournaments with the two of them right it was really just me like like texting them on on, on WhatsApp and then after throwing my phone across the room and being like what have I done <laughs> Yeah. Alright, and how about the third person then? Third person is Adil. Adil uh, was my first pro. Adil uh, actually uh, did a lot of anxiety management, helped me um, understand my anxieties better, where, where, where my speaking anxieties come from. Because um, I'm a naturally very anxious person. He actually like delved a bit into like my, my personal insecurities and obviously tried during the tournament to help me manage those insecurities you know like I remember him getting me to do push-ups before the round because I was so nervous you know and he was trying to get me to work off right. that anxious and adrenaline and energy in general I think he he rightly pointed out that I had a very crippling fear of failure and he was and he encouraged me to explore that and I think I, I that was the first time in my life I realized oh wait I do have a fear of failure I do have a fear of looking stupid and embarrassed and embarrassing myself you know like that 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 partnership helped me introspect on my personal insecurities and my anxieties as a speaker. It was a stepping stone for me to learn how to manage them because I when I, I didn't manage them well in the quarterfinals of IMUDO and that's how Adil and I lost the IMUDO. I he trusted me enough, right, to push me to do member of GAF. Okay. And I 
vlog, like, the extension was absolutely atrocious. Like, there's nothing going on. Like, I, I clearly, like, messed up. Because, like, Jaina was, like, our OG and I was I was so freaked out. But how how, how specifically did Adil help you manage those fears? Uh, it's not just talking, lah. So it's just like, uh, why, why are you so scared? You're scared for f***. Like, it's also like a... <laughs> It, it, it really is is that right and then and then obviously like telling me things like how um people are not going to expect you to go up there and say like fucking Ashish Kumar stuff you don't go and fucking run all the sexy arguments first you know like do your basic stuff first you know that kind of thing like a lot of like right. because like obviously if you say a lot of the sexy arguments first then you end up it's, it's a form of overcompensating basically right. um, and so he says you, you, you need to ground yourself you know and then he'll give me the grounding exercises that I needed to do at that point to calm myself down. Yeah, and that, that was very valuable right. for me, yeah. Alright, so the final name, Chinwi, right? There are two people I cannot stare at. Like, if they, if I stare at them while they're debating, I'll stop tracking because they, are, they have such good style, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, tracking, right, would take away from the appreciation of the style, you know? Like, it was, like, Chinwi is, Chinwi's style is just really good. I remember, um, uh, Chinwi and Arthur were at UNUS pre-ABPs and somehow, I found myself in the same room as them, in the same bracket. And, it was so scary because they were OG and it was OO. And I remember very clearly that after the round, Chinwi actually bothered to to talk to me, you know. And that that was like, hey, like this is the first time a world schools person has ever talked to me ever in my life, you know. Like it was it's a very right. refreshing stance because most of the time they don't really talk to people um or their opponents after the round. So to me that was very new. And then also right. in general, like in in terms of his debating ability, right, he's just insanely good at at like crafting not just narratives but crafting arguments like it's insane how 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 much this man knows about about how to persuade people he could sell you snake powder and you'd be fine with it <laughs> you know I had a kid a uh, couple of years back he would come in like he was not very good debater at the point of time right like um, he was just very new like 2-3 months in and then he came in one time and he said I just watched this like video of a debater doing like a a, a reply speech and I am like I'm just going to do that every time. For oh now. my like, gosh. And I, I didn't think very much of it at that point of time because I'm just like, oh, okay, you do you, law, right? And then he goes out and he says, there are two worlds in this oh. debate. I'm like, oh no! I know who you're talking about! I love it though. <laughs> No, and then and then I remember uh, when he heard that Chinmi was gonna be at JG's, right? Uh, to judge like potentially, he was like, "Okay, now I need to make the JG's team so I can go go see Chinmi." Oh, I love it though. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. This level of obsession cannot. Okay, okay, but idol worshiping not very good, ah, uh, yeah. Not exactly. So I was just like, oh, oh, okay, okay, sure. As in. One of the reasons why I was also just, he's not just a, a very, an excellent debater and he's not just an excellent rhetorician. It's just, he's just also a very, he just seems like a very nice person. He's funny. For sure. He's quite funny. He is. He does he a lot is. of weird shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember MDO 2017, <laughs> I, I walked into a, in the hotel room with, with a bunch of the people that I was with at that point, with Anxi Mingling, Fahan, and all those humans. And like, I walked in and I was like, he suddenly had his shirt off and I was like, what, what? <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, this is funny. Like, this is actually funny. Like, I, I never saw this side of Chimmy. So, like, to have someone, like, be that good, but also have such a human quality, I think that's that's why that's why he's on Rushmore, yeah. We are approaching the end of the podcast. Any last thoughts, words to our listeners? Um, If you are, like, a younger debater listening to this, um, please make sure that you don't look at debating as being something that is only about winning or about the winnings and losses. It's really, it really isn't. And honestly, in the course of, of your career, you're likely to lose more than you win anything. And so, therefore, I want 
to exhort you guys to think about what you take away from debating beyond this. For me, it was be just being more confident, being more curious, being more, just being more critical, you know, being able to do more activist work. You know, for me, I was, I feel like it's unlocked uh, an ability to be an activist in a way that a lot of people are unprivileged enough to, to access. Secondly, it's also that you shouldn't base your self-esteem on things like how well you're doing in debate. You're not less smart or less lovable just because the speaker tab says that you are ranking like 50 or 60th on tap. Your your worth as a person is not defined on your debating performances. And you should always know that when judges and coaches see you give a bad speech, it doesn't mean that we that we've written you off as a as a stupid human being. Right. That is just not true. Definitely. Okay? Definitely. And 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 conversely, if you start start ranking fifth above a coach in random tournaments, uh that doesn't mean anything either. <laughs> <laughs> For the older debaters, um, debaters like Dion, I will encourage you to introspect a little bit more if something like that happens. That's my final closing <laughs> remark. <laughs> <laughs>